This is Deb Donig with Technically Human, a podcast about ethics and technology, where I ask what it means to be human in the age of tech. Each week, I interview industry leaders, thinkers, writers, and technologists, and I ask them about how they understand the relationship between humans and the technologies we create. We discuss how we can build a better vision for technology, one that represents the best of our human values. Today I am speaking with Dave Eggers. Dave Eggers is the author of The Circle, a heartbreaking work of staggering genius. What is the what? A hologram for the king and the lifters, among many other books. He is the founder of McSweeney's, an independent publishing company based in San Francisco that produces books, a humor website, and a journal of new writing, McSweeney's Quarterly Concern. McSweeney's also publishes Voice of Witness, a nonprofit book series that uses oral history to illuminate human rights crises around the world. Hi, Dave. Hi, Deb. How are you? I wanted to start by bringing you and our listeners into one of the moments of deep suspense in the circle. In this moment, May, our heroine, who works for a mega tech company determined to bring infinite access to information to all of its users, has recently been equipped with a lens to wear around her neck, which projects everything she sees and does to the world. In one of her first broadcasts, she encounters a tech company's new curious acquisition on display at its campus. A shark, which is omnivorous and blind, that found its meals immediately, no matter how big or small, dead or alive, and ingested them with alarming speed. The shark's menacing voracity, eating indiscriminately and rapaciously and excreting whatever is left of its victim's bodies as ash, is coupled with a second striking trait. That is the shark's translucent skin, which allowed an unfettered view into its digestive process. The shark is a menace in so many ways, in its insatiability, in its almost instant destruction of any ecosystem it lands in, and in the way that the circle's leadership revels in that destruction. What's the most menacing thing about the shark for you? You know, the shark is sort of the pet of Stenton, who is maybe of the, there's three founders or three heads of the company, nicknamed the three wise men. And Stenton you know, they have an, a giant octopus, too, and they have a um, seahorse. And each one of these three, the seahorse, the octopus, and the stentin, I mean, I'm sorry, and the shark <laughs> sort of is a animal world stand-in for or corollary for one of the three wise men. And stentin's corollary, of course, is the shark. And that's why it's his pet, in a way. And the shark is sort of, you know, represents the voracious capitalism that has kind of turned so much that could be idealistic and positive and benign about the internet and has digests it and turns it to ash. And that was sort of my way of feeling about what had started out as a... Uh, project of pure optimism and idealism and democratization of information. But um, I watched the internet turn into a playground for voracious and unchecked and unregulated capitalism. And so the shark is that, you know, never stopping, never ceasing, never sleeping and omnivorous. I want to follow up on that because the utopian view of the circle is to ultimately close the circle, a term that refers to the aim of making all knowledge complete, right? That's the utopic vision. That's kind of the shark eating up everything. And the argument that a character in the novel gives for closing the circle is kind of compelling in a way. He argues that with complete information, we can understand the world better and we can make better decisions about how to navigate it when we have more data. It sounds utopian, at least as he puts it. Is there a flaw in this argument? What, what could go wrong? Well, it, you know, I, I love arguments and propositions and proposals and technology and uh, in the circle that really has that 51-49 ratio where you think like, well, wait a minute, that actually sounds like a very reasonable idea. And, and so I was 
again and again trying to come up with practices at the circle and technology that they used or invented that really had a lot of benefits. But you flick a switch and it turns into an, a, you know, a, a brilliant tool for authoritarian regimes or even unregulated capitalism. And so when it comes to like these control groups, whether it's a, you know, recently they've been testing COVID-19 in communities that they could test everybody. Like up here in Northern California, there's a town called Bolinas, and they just tested everybody in the town to see what the prevalence of the virus was in a complete and somewhat isolated control group. And I don't know if you remember, they did this in Iceland where they sort of mapped the human genome and did a sort of a complete genealogical uh, profile for everybody on the island because it was also sort of a very limited and um, sort of un, uh, unchanged genetic pool going back a thousand years, you know, people who have been in Iceland living there. So that was of great benefit for those that were studying various diseases and how they are transferred or through generations. And so there's a real value to having a complete data set where nobody's left out. And the more you can get a complete set, you know, the more value it is. And I remember talking to some people that worked at LinkedIn who, young staffers, after the book was published, and they came up to me. I'm always meeting young staffers at every tech company, just by the way. I, they're always visiting and writing and emailing, and um, and they're all so open and so interested and grappling with so many of these problems and issues and ethics involved. But they were saying at LinkedIn, like, yeah, they, their business model is completion, is to get as many people as possible. Their data and their business model increases in value the closer they get to a complete look at everybody at every company and how they're all interconnected. And so they're on a relentless quest to complete that lattice work of connections and any broken connections are sort of a failure, right. you know, until they can connect them. Why? And that's why you get these, you know, endless notifications that so-and-so wants you to link to their LinkedIn or you're invited to join. And I think that, you know, it, it makes a certain amount of sense. There are so many different applications, medical in particular, of sort of a complete data set that are sometimes hard to argue with. But right now, we're really dealing with a existential sort of pivot or a sort of a moment that we are going to uh, have to decide, do we submit to full transparency medically for the good of the whole, for the good of everybody, like, you know, contact tracing, how much we should be we should know about our neighbors and community members that have the virus in in interest of our own safety. And it's the same thing. You know, the more we know, actually, the safer we are and the better doctors and scientists can study a problem. But at the same time, we uh, sacrifice our privacy for that safety and for that what might be considered the greater good uh, as it relates to science and uh, and medicine. So it's a it's one of those thorny yeah. issues. And, you know, I try to just sort of thread the needle in between and say, you still have to have an opt out. You still have to have uh, the option to to opt out, and you and the decision has to be yours. It cannot be made without your consent. But we are hurtling toward consentless full medical disclosure and transparency, uh, and I think it will be an inevitability within the next ten years. And so much of the novel is about reaching that point over which. The, the car goes over the cliff. In fact, there's a scene where that does happen, where the tipping point is breached and a character actually goes over that cliff seating 
his life or his privacy. I want to get back to that. But I, before we get there, I wanted to think about this character, May. Your description of the young techies at LinkedIn who come up to you reminds me very much of the novel's protagonist. And I wanted to ask you, what makes May a particularly good lens through which to view and to navigate the Circle's universe? Well, I've been out here in San Francisco since 92. So when so much of this was just beginning, and back then it was a very different internet, and there were only a few major players, AOL, Netscape maybe, Earthlink. I mean, it was before Google and before Facebook, well before Facebook, and before sort of the big five consolidated their power. And back then, you know, all the people that I knew in their 20s, um, not all, but a lot of them ended up going into tech or founding companies and were later sold. And there was a lot of idealism and, and even a little bit of the old San Francisco hippie kind of DIY mentality that went into what they were doing. And so I thought I'd been taking notes for a book like this for years and didn't really know what vessel to put them in. And often I'll spend years and years taking notes without knowing what the form will be. Is it a story? Is it an essay? Is it a piece of nonfiction or a novel? And I really felt like there were plenty of people that had more expertise and experience in the tech industry that were writing essays and writing nonfiction screeds or from the inside. And uh, I felt like that was covered. And I thought maybe something I could do differently would be to write a novel that slowly turns the screws, that slowly allows the walls to close in on somebody that goes into the work with open eyes, open heart, total optimism, and and ready to believe. And so I thought, rather than a cranky old guy like me, it would be more accurate and reflective of what actually happens to have somebody straight out of college thinking that they've landed their dream job. And so once I sort of came up with that format and thought about May as somebody from a rural farming community east of uh, San Francisco, coming to the city and to the coast and getting her very well-paying job that gave her family health insurance, all of these things, then it sort of all came together. It gave her a motive to take a blind eye to so many of the sort of ethical quandaries and and lapses and to make her feel sort of inherently loyal and grateful to this company that sort of plucked her out of obscurity and gave her an opportunity. And um, so she is really so much like so many young tech staffers that I meet. They're all bright, optimistic, idealistic, well-educated, thoughtful, totally open to discussing the problems, you know, and the lapses at their companies and they are just almost without exception aware and trying to fix things or rolling or at least at the very least rolling their eyes at the uh some of the problems i think that they always give me hope i whether or not they have power to change things i don't know but at least they are completely uh intellectually nimble and aware of what's going on and I wanted to follow up on that question because you're talking about May and her cohort as generally good people who are committed to doing the good. And I think one of the things that the novel really asks us to do is to grapple with the sense in which the characters who work at the circle really seem like generally good people. May seems like she could be any one of my recently graduated students, ambitious, spunky, interested in making a difference, willing to work hard in the industry that she wants to rise in. And the Circles campus seems like a great place to work with this kind of Facebook, Google-like set of amenities, endless events and parties. Uh, the leader of the Circle, Eamon Bailey, one of the wise men, Uncle Eamon, is the charismatic CEO, and he's twinkly-eyed, happy, and earnest. He's generally a good guy. At first glance, at least, the Circle seems like a utopia, and the people who work there seem to see themselves as good people. And that makes the nefarious nature of what's going on even more distressing to me. How do we understand the relationship between good people in that kind of feel-good culture and the utopic vision on the one hand and the production of 
real evil and dystopia on the other. I think at the core, you do have these two sides of the same coin. It's Eamon Bailey, who really, he is using technology. He sees it as a way to learn more about the world, connect people, that there's just no limit to how much technology can bring people together and make all of the world's information available democratically. He really is an idealist about it. But of course, you can't do that and maintain an ever-growing company without a voracious, monopolistic, capitalistic sort of fervor that's embodied by Stenton. He's the one that figures out how to monetize those impulses of Bailey's. And so the monetization was something that we didn't really see coming. I didn't in the early 90s with AOL. You used to have to pay to get your email. And it was a very simple transaction. You paid for your access. You paid just like you did the phone company and you could send emails. Somewhere along the line, everything turned into the idea that you had, it had to be free or at least seemingly free. And so the business model changed to one of surreptitious data collection. You get something free, but in exchange for unknown levels of spying on you. And it was a very weird, diabolical, Faustian bargain that everybody still has to deal with. And right now we're dealing with it with Zoom. Everybody is leaping with two feet into Zoom, not knowing at all what data is being collected on them, how they are monetizing a billion people suddenly using their platform. Like, we don't have to pay for it. So what is happening? How is it working? Mm -hmm. Where are they making money? Mm -hmm. And I think that's sort of the original sin of the Internet in a way, this idea that everything has to be free. And so companies are obliged to spy on us, go behind our back in some way to monetize us in ways that we're unaware of and, and that are not transparent and are very dubious and, um, and I think sort of inherently dishonest. Um, mm -hmm. And it would be, it didn't have to be this way. I really wish it had been built and continued as it was at the very beginning where you paid for things. And it was very clear what that transaction was. And there wasn't that need or impulse or necessity to monetize uh, behind mm -hmm. our backs. And, and at the same time, I wish that there had been regulation from the very beginning, as there is with every other industry, to say, well, of course you can't spy on your users without them knowing it. You can't track them as they go from one site to another. That would be completely outrageous. <laughs> and all of these sort of outrageous things that were ba baked in and are now just considered part of the, the fabric uh, and just uh, par for the course of our use of digital tools are, would be considered, if we were starting over, would all be considered completely beyond the pale. But they were baked in and things move so fast that it's very difficult to sort of claw all those rights back. And it leads me right into the next question I have, which is about a character who in the novel sees the need for this kind of correction to this ecosystem and has written a document titled The Rights of Humans in a Digital Age. Those rights include the ideas that we must have the right to anonymity, that not every human activity can be measured, that the ceaseless pursuit of data to quantify the value of any endeavor is catastrophic to true understanding, that the barrier between public and private must remain unbreachable, and that we must all have the right to disappear. Why are these rights so important? What do they preserve or prevent? It's funny that we're discussing that because in t before 10 years ago, it wasn't even a question. You know, these were all inalienable rights. You know, they were just considered sort of part and parcel of living in a democracy that respected privacy. But we sort of got squeezed by both sides. One, we ceded so much of our data and uh, privacy to, to private companies in exchange for free stuff. And I think that the government, and not just ours, but more authoritarian governments, but certainly here at the NSA, took note of how little outrage there was and how 
willing we were to be spied on um, and to have dossiers collected on us by private companies. So they took note, and the NSA greatly expanded their collection and their surveillance, you know, after the Patriot Act and, and onward, partly because all of this is so easy and free, almost free, in terms of how cheap it is to collect, you know, this information about our movements, about what we read, what we say, who we text, what we all of these different connections and and we're seeing it now you know in the interest of tracking the movements of those that have been infected and just the movements of people in general sort of to see how social distancing is working in different parts of the country or different parts of the world cell phone <clears throat> companies quickly aggregate all of their data and say here's where people are moving here's where they're not this is supposedly anonymized information but it could also be easily de-anonymized with the right, with the will and the motive to do so. I think anytime you collect this information, it becomes dangerous and it can be used against you and used to oppress people, especially in more authoritarian countries. So I think, you know, there was a German tech ethicist. She said, people under surveillance are not free. And I think it's so inherently logical and hard to argue with. It's just foundational that if you're being surveilled, you're not free anymore. You know, we consider this something that was done in maybe the McCarthy era or by the Stasi in East Germany or some of these very uh, scary authoritarian times and political environments that you would, it seemed nightmarish that somebody knew of all of your movements and tracked who you were talking to and where you were going and what you had bought. Well, that used to be very expensive to do and took tens of thousands of Stasi agents in Germany, but now it can be done with a handful of people sitting at laptops. You know, they can track the movements and behaviors of tens of thousands of people. And so, and we've come to accept it. So it's very strange, but I, I still maintain that if you are being tracked and surveilled, and if people can easily see who you, where you're going, you're, you're really not living in a free environment anymore. You have seeded that. You're being kept. You are being caged. You're no longer a truly free person. And I think that that's why I'm so fascinated by this time, because we really have taken a very quick but I think irreversible evolutionary path where you know, like we would qualify as radical speciation, where we've changed from a people that really valued our freedom, our anonymity, our privacy, and our ability to sort of move around unwatched to one that is completely accepting in maybe 97% of our movements behaviors and communications being public and uh, easily accessed by governments and private corporations. And that's a, it's a pretty big evolutionary shift in a very short amount of time. And you say the word evolutionary, which I think is so important because it points not only to the political implications, but actually some of the philosophical and epistemological implications of this constant surveillance. There's a character who resists being tethered to this world that's governed by the circle surveillance and the data mining. And that character writes a letter to May in which he says, we are not meant to know everything. Did you ever think that perhaps our minds are delicately calibrated between the known and the unknown, that our souls need the mysteries of night and the clarity of day? It's such a beautiful line that to me resonates very deeply with the idea of essentially not just what it means to be a political person subjected to these kinds of scrutinies and these kinds of surveillances, but actually what it means to be human, to think as a human and to relate to other humans. And I wanted to ask you, how does a data-driven culture of surveillance change how we're encouraged to think? I think that um, there are basically, there's a, a war between two competing interests. One is the right to know, and that is, I think, at constant in constant dialogue and tension with the right to privacy and and the right to mystery. And so let's put those two together, right to privacy slash mystery and the right to know and slash define 
or attached numerical designations to. That's on the other side. And the right to know is destroying, beating to a pulp, steamrolling the right to privacy and mystery. There's just no competition. And what I've been sort of interested to see is that we vastly prefer the right to know, to define, to nail down, and to number every conceivable part of our lives. And I can't think of anything that has resisted it because everything down to, you know, I make fun of what will come soon where we attach numerical assessments to paintings and poetry. Well, that's certainly coming. I mean, we've done it to movies and all kinds of other art forms. So I'm not sure what's left. People attach numerical assessments to their teachers, to everybody, to the restaurants, to uh, every kind of human activity because it simplifies things. It makes what's hard to define simpler and easy to define. And I think that we have become a very numerically driven species where we want the numbers for anything. I'm a football fan, and recently they've started showing probabilities of who's going to win, and the probabilities change as the game goes on. And I find it fascinating and also really soothing to know that my team has a 91% chance of winning you know, late in the third quarter because they're up by 10 points or whatever. I find like that it somehow gives me a sense of inner calm. And I think that numbers do that for everybody. And we had a very peaceful sense of calm when we knew that Hillary Clinton could not possibly lose the election. There was no mathematical model that allowed Trump to win. And we were all lulled into that kind of complacency, too. And I think that we we are always looking in a complicated world where we just there's just so much coming at us. Anything that allows us to sort of think that we understand something or think that something complex is actually simple. And if some movie that we don't know why we like it, if we can just say it's an 80 on Rotten Tomatoes, that somehow makes it easier to categorize in our minds or to sort of wrap our heads around it because numbers are just so hard and just so um, definitive in a way, whereas language is so squishy and so uh, subjective. And so I think that the more and more we're looking for numbers to say what we can't say through language and define what's undefinable. And the only thing that has resisted the numerical sort of designation, it seems like, is uh, people. Every service industry has, and even down to professors and lawyers, have sort of websites that rate them on a numerical basis. But there was that app, I don't know if you remember, <laughs> it It was called People. I think it might have been P-E-E-P-L-E. It was maybe like eight years ago, and it was going to be a way that you could just rate anyone. So everybody would have an account, and then I would rate you, you would rate me, every friend would rate their friends, and enemies would rate their enemies, and somehow you'd walk around with a number that had was an aggregate of people's feelings about you. And I think, I guess, just like people chase Facebook friends or likes, they would go around trying to better their numerical aggregate, the same way that Yelp businesses are always trying to fix their aggregates. And I don't know why that was the one app that outraged people, and they were sort of driven from uh, the digital realm with pitchforks and torches. But that was the only time that I've seen uh, a pushback. And it's really weird to know or to, you know, to figure out when they do push back, because I, it seems one out of a thousand seeming outrages actually becomes an outrage. And, um, but I think otherwise, we've just, again, changed as a species where everything numbered somehow gives us uh, a sense of definition, peace, and, and a way to explain the world. And, uh, 
put it in our pocket. And it's also a series of feedback loops. I, I'm reminded as you were talking of the Fitbit, where it records the number of steps, it quantifies your activity, and then it actually changes behavior so that its input actually becomes your input and then becomes a new output right. for its input, which is really an set of you know ways in which this is actually just changing the fundamental behavior and self-understanding of human beings. Um, I wanted to ask you to talk a little bit about a document that appears in the novel called The Rights of Humans in the Digital Age. It actually bears resemblance to a talk you gave in 2018 for the Penn H.G. Wells Lecture on Digital Human Rights. The date of the talk, of course, marked the 70th anniversary of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. In the speech, you called for a Universal Declaration of Digital Rights. What, in your view, would such a document look like? And who would you get to write it? What are some of the essential features of the document as you imagine it? I always thought it would be a consortium or, you know, a, a bunch of humanists and technologists and ethicists and scientists and people from the inside and people from the outside together, maybe 50 people that have various expertise and they could bang out a document that would be very readable and easily translated. And maybe it was modeled on the original, you know, Universal Declaration of Human Rights. Um, I tried to do it a few times myself because I thought, well, that document is such a great primer and such a good foundation for a new one. And then every so often there is one, you know, like I've read maybe six or seven different digital human rights declarations in different forms. And I think every year somebody does one. I think Tim Berners-Lee did one in this last 12 months or so in trying to get tech leaders to sign on to it, which he, I think he was relatively successful with. And um, what's funny to me is that I always thought the technology company leaders would be very open to being regulated. I think that so many of them, you look at the Bill Gateses of the world who are trying to make the world better, and I think that they would very often welcome guidelines so that they were not outliers or outlaws. I think that so many of these tech leaders want to do the right thing. I wouldn't say all of them do, but I think a lot of them do. And if you were to say, this is way out of bounds, we're not going to do this anymore, they would say, okay, good. We all agree on that. We'll, we'll go another way. But there hasn't been, I think, a legal movement, sort of legislative movement to do it in a concerted way. These are all piecemeal laws state by state country by country that you know are very very hard to enforce the european countries go after the big five after the fact and then enforce fines that may or may not ever be paid as opposed to sort of a framework up front that sort of lays out what the boundaries are i mean the oil industry the plastic toy industry medical devices, all of these other industries are governed by very, you know, clear practices and laws. It's not to say they're not broken from time to time, but they're there. And I think that, that the tech industry still is not subject to any kind of governing principles, any kind of agreement about what's right and wrong, and certainly no set of coherent laws. So um, I think there are so many people that are qualified to write such a, uh, a declaration. And it has been written. It just seems like they, they get written and then they come and go. And they don't really have that sort of weight that the Universal Declaration of Human Rights had way back when. And why, I'm not, not exactly sure. I think some of it goes back to the fact that you cannot create any offense that really that really engenders any outrage among any tiny percentage of digital users. There's just almost, no matter how many data breaches or how many offenses, nobody seems to care all that much. You know, it's very interesting because I'm teaching this course on ethical technology right now, and I give my students information, and I give them the articles to read, and we recently read Brave New World, and I could tell you they were far more outraged about the view that uh, they got from Brave New World's surveillance state than, than any of the actual surveillances that they're experiencing in their real world. And on that 
point, I wanted to ask you a question about form and about fiction in particular, because it seems like fiction has this very significant weight to it. And you, you give a fictional character in your novel a rough outline of the same document that you propose in your talk. And both of these works, both the Universal Declaration of Digital Rights that you discuss therein and in the novel, both look at some of the grave consequences of unchecked data harvesting and exploitation. What, what do you think that fiction does in the form of the novel in particular that allows you to say or imagine digital human rights differently or to have that imagination resonate differently? What kind of work does fiction do in thinking about digital human rights? Well, the hope is, just like you mentioned with Brave New World, is that you see what's right in front of you in a different way, or you see where our current path might take us. You know, that's the point of dystopian fiction in a way. Speculative fiction is is presenting two paths, or at least two, and saying, if we're not careful, we're headed down this one. This is where we will end up. Do we want to be there in five, ten years? And if we can create a convincing world and show all of the implications of that world and all of what it's going to mean for everyday life and human dignity, and maybe we, we, we can say, well, we definitely don't want to go there. So let's take all necessary steps so that we can alter our course. But, um, and so, you know, that was my hope. My hope was to scare myself and the reader into a reckoning and maybe behavioral modification too, to say like, you know, we're complicit. We've created the panopticon that we live in. I think so far I've implied maybe too much that the companies themselves have created the situation we're in. And I would say they are just a part of it. We have created this dystopian future that we already live in, we've been active co-creators of it because this right to know. And there's, again, this weird double-edged sword to it because on the one hand, isn't it good to know and to want to know? I mean, this goes back to the Enlightenment and, you know, this idea that anything, any knowledge is good knowledge. Any sort of scientific pursuit you'd think would be almost inherently noble and an improving of the species, making us happier, healthier, more able to handle ourselves in the world and, and preserve the world. I mean, all of these things are, go hand in hand, I think, with the pursuit of science and knowledge. But right now, we're at a, at a point of like unbelievable acceleration where it's not just exploring the sky, the oceans, the land, mapping the world, which we've already done. Now it's about mapping each other and ourselves, the genome and our behaviors. And we're at the very, very beginning, I think, of our seeking unchecked knowledge about how, who we are, how we behave. And again, the right to know is going to continue to supersede any possibility of privacy. And it's gonna go a bunch of different ways. On the one hand, Right now, everyone's saying they have a right to know who has COVID in their neighborhood or in their community. That's going to begin a very slippery slope where we're going to say, we also have a right to know who has committed a crime in our neighborhood. Wouldn't, why don't we have a map of felons in our cities and neighborhoods? Because shouldn't we know that? And the right to know is going to continue down the way. Who has this disease near us? Who has done that, who has committed a white collar crime in our apartment building, don't I have a right to know? And it's gonna be a very hard thing to say you don't have a right to know because what politician is going to protect the rights to privacy for ex-felons, for example? There's gonna be no, no one, I think, that will stand up for their privacy. So I think you're gonna see more and more intrusions to the point of almost total transparency where we feel like we have the right to know everything about the people around us in the interest of our own safety, supposedly. You know, it will be uh, delicious for private companies to have all of those remaining barriers removed too so that 
not only do they have to surreptitiously gather all this information, but it all has to be willingly given up and made public. And so I think it will drastically increase class stratification. It will drastically decrease the rights of those who aren't born in the right zip codes and with the right same opportunities. Those that are lower on the socioeconomic will remain so. And I think uh, it can only go one way. You can never claw back or even slow down the need to know and the right to know. And I think that that's where that's what's going to be interesting in these next 10 years. Your comments are particularly resonant and urgent as we see what you're talking about here, these data tracking apps that have these enormous consequences for how people, particularly vulnerable populations, uh, are surveilled very frequently uh, with deleterious consequences. I recently heard someone say that this moment is actually a tipping point for how tech and how decisions about technological innovations will develop as we seek to remake our world in the wake of the virus. The tree, this person said, is falling and wherever it lands, it will land forever. The meaning of which is that the technologies we introduce right now will stay with us and will track our path in the foreseeable future. We don't have a lot of control over whether or not the tree falls, it's going to fall, but I think we can help direct where it lands. What calculations, principles, and values do you think we need to follow in deciding where that metaphorical tree lands? You know, it's a good question. I, you know, individual rights seated during any crisis are almost impossible to claw back. I mean, this is going back to the Reichstag that enabled Hitler to, to eliminate individual rights in, in Germany and um, 9-11 precipitating the Patriot Act and all of its violations and the growth of the NSA. Now we have a sort of a more medical crisis that's going to eliminate the idea of medical privacy. Where the tree falls, I luckily, the medical profession is better regulated. It already has infrastructure for whether it's HIPAA, whether it's uh, all of these different sort of overlapping laws that prevent the dissemination of medical information. I think that we might have a bulwark there. We might have a levy because it is a profession and an industry that does have so many laws built in already. But but at the same time, I think um, I think that the, the people's demand to know things will be sort of the, the flood that breaks the levees. I think eventually you're going to see people volunteering the information. You're going to see more of willingness to sort of give up more information, whether it's for insurers. Um, there's going to be already, uh, there's just much more sharing of data than there used to be because of all, you know, when all of the medical files in your local pediatrician's office, when they've all gone digital, they're almost in, inherently, inevitably compromised. And I think that because that compromising of all of this information has gone on without much outrage, I think pre people will pretty soon feed uh, first anonymized information, but I think pretty soon, you know, de-anonymized information too. I think partly for the common good, like, okay, I have this virus. I want people to know I have it. Here's what happened to me. Here's how... Uh, here's how many, you know, and in the same way we answer census information. But I think that between people's lack of outrage, willingness to give up information, the incredible value of this data to private medical companies, pharmaceutical companies, all of the capitalists involved in exploiting and monetizing it, and on the sort of the idealist side, the idea that huh, the more we know collectively, about the prevalence of disease and the location, regions, all of these things, the better it might be treated. I think you're going to see, whether it's a tree or, or a levy, a, the idea of privacy attached to medical information, I think, is, is not long for this world. I think uh, 10, 10 years tops uh, we have left for any hope of that. I think otherwise this will be considered selfish. To, to keep your medical history private because it, uh, it prevents your neighbors from knowing what they're living with and it also prevents greater medical sort of breakthroughs and 
scientific breakthroughs. So I think that's this will be we'll look at this as that tipping point. Yeah, for sure. When medical privacy had its last stand. Your vision of the end of privacy and medical privacy and as the gateway to all other forms of privacy plays out in the circle when May, by the end of the novel, has a chance to intervene and perhaps even shut down the circle's ambitious plans for complete data harvesting and amassment. There's a, there's a moment of dangerous, suspenseful hope that she will shut it down. And the novel's final chapter, spoiler alert for those who have not read it, uh, finds May risen to the inner center of the circle instead, rejecting the principles encoded in the rights of humans in the digital age in favor of the circle's totalitarian completionist vision, the one that you're expecting to play out over the next 10 years, or at least in aspirational senses, uh, attempt to play out. It's frankly devastating. As much as I knew that that ending was coming, it was devastating to read it actually come to fruition. Did you have any hope that May would do otherwise? Oh, no. That was the ending before I began the book. About half the time I know the ending before I start a book, and um, the ending is just key to the meaning of the whole book. And so in that case, I didn't want to offer false hope or a totally unrealistic outcome. It's just completely without precedent or possibility that she would take down this company or alter its course significantly. It just hasn't happened yet in the world. Uh, there's been no reversal or even slowing down of any of these developments. But I also knew that the reader might expect a happy ending or they're trained or maybe conditioned to or they maybe just were hoping to have somewhat of a happy ending or have somebody from within blow up the Death Star. But I really didn't think it was even remotely plausible and there's something kind of fun, I think, about pulling the rug out from under the reader or at least ending that itself, but it, but it's more truthful, I guess. I didn't want to create some corny, false, and unrealistic ending that implied that there was hope to turn everything around um, or one person could. I. Instead, May, right when, you know, she, she decides what Circle needs to know is more. And, um, and that's going to be going within the cranium. And uh, why don't we have a right? If we have a right to people's messages and addresses and behaviors and purchase history and medical history, why wouldn't we have a right to their thoughts? And, you know, the whole book is about the selfishness of privacy. And or that's one of the propositions posed by so many of the people in the circles, like keeping things to yourself, whether it's information that could be useful in medicine or whether it's behavioral history or purchase history that, could, that might be useful for improving products or helping serve you better, to uh, use one of the favorite phrases of the Internet. All of these things to keep them from those that might benefit is a form of selfishness. And so your thoughts being your own seems to this philosophy outrageous. Why, why, why do you, why should you have a right to your own thoughts? It just seems totally uh, indefensible and selfish. Like why? And so you end up with this very strange mix that still exists here and it's driven the cultures of a lot of these companies for so long of sort of like a weird techno libertarianism where regulation is inherently suspect and unnecessary and and wrong and impeding of progress but there's also a kind of a weird collectivism too that says we are all of one mind we share all I just wanted to uh, ask you one last question as we end, because it seems to me that in this remarkable dystopia, there's one moment of extreme optimism that I found, one thing that seems to resist the circle's kind of totalizing view. And that comes very shortly after the scene with the shark, which is bordered by another scene in which May encounters a statue that has been newly acquired by the circle by a Chinese artist famous for dissident art. The novel describes the piece as 14 feet high, made of a thin and perfectly translucent form of plexiglass. 
though most of the artist's previous work had been conceptual, this was representational, unmistakable. A massive hand as big as a car was reaching out from or through a rectangle, which most of us took to imply some sort of computer screen. The sculpture is titled Reaching Through for the Good of Humankind. When May asks a fellow circular what this sculpture means, her coworker replies, and this I thought was hilarious, well, I'm not an expert, but I think it's pretty obvious. <laughs> He's trying to say that we need more yeah. ways to reach the screen, right? The artist has declined to speak for himself, we learn. So on the one hand, we have the shark, this out of control destructive force that's wreaking endless consumption and whose vehicle is an embodied form of total transparency that shows its grotesque appetite for that destruction. And on the other hand, we have this piece of art whose total opacity seems essential to the way it makes meaning. It is impenetrable, especially to the people who think that they can penetrate everything, that everything is transparent. In fact, the co-worker's too easy reading of the sculpture renders the sculpture absolutely even more opaque. So irony might be the thing that data analysts can't grasp. It seems like art in the novel presents circulars with something that eludes the kind of interpretive faculties of dataism. Do you agree? How does art do this? Is art our last hope? I, you know, that, although they, you know, there is a museum on campus where the circulars are encouraged to put their rating, and that rating is always uh, slightly changing. So you might have The Last Supper getting an 88.1, and <laughs> if you wanted to get it up a little bit, you could go in with a bunch of friends and, and get it up to an 84.6. Um, <laughs> that's absolutely coming. I mean, there's just no way it's not coming if it's come to every other art form. But, um, you know, I, I wanted, in that scene, that's like, a, you know, it's based on Ai Weiwei that they commission. I mean, most of these tech companies are huge commissioners of art. Facebook has like a whole huge gallery of amazing art that they've commissioned. And I have so many friends that have created on-site, site-specific stuff for them. And so they're good patrons of very good art. But in this case, I wanted Ai Weiwei to sort of be tweaking them. They don't know. They, they're stuck with what he's given them. He's tickled by the idea that they would put this thing that he sees as nakedly critical and creepy in the middle of their campus and celebrating it and willfully misinterpreting it. And I, you know, I, I think I, I was an art student in college. And so I, I'm always going back to sort of that last bastion or what might be the last bastion of sort of enigmatic life, how, you know, it's so hard to even writing about art is like tap dancing about architecture. I don't know if that's an old comparison, but I like the, the way that it defies easy interpretation, or it seems to, but it doesn't stop people from wanting to, uh, to attach numbers to it. And, and again, I, we're heading there. And again, you've seen, you know, you don't see filmmakers really resisting Rotten Tomatoes which I think is a nakedly dystopian horror that would never see, you know, it would, it would horrify anyone a hundred years ago that, that works of art had percentages, numerical percentages attached to them that sort of were, seemed definitive and unchangeable. And that was the historical assessment of, of, of a work of art. It's undeniably horrifying but we live with it and everybody has come to accept it. And I think that the fact that we don't see things like that the way we would have 50 years ago, you know, we've, we've eased into them starting with stars and thumbs up and people clapping and all of these ridiculous little um, ways to, uh, to judge art. And now we have arrived at this sort of numerical percentage. Um, the fact that we accept it, it just means, you know, we are the frogs that have slowly boiled in the pot. But I want to say before before I uh, sign off, it's, I've been only negative here. And I do, what's so weird is that this is obviously a dystopian book and it's not super optimistic, but it's also a satire. It's also a farce. And I think, and you know, when I talk to college students and I'd been down at Cal State at San Luis Obispo uh, a lot of years ago for a different book, but I, you know, I'm always 
so encouraged when I talk to college students because, one, they are generally aware of what's going on. Two, they feel like they have power. Three, they're open to exercising it. And I think that consumers do have a lot of power. You don't have to work with so many of these companies. You do have options. Instead of using a search engine that follows you, you could use one like DuckDuckGo that doesn't. Instead of Facebook, you could use MeWe or a lot of these other social media platforms that don't, that don't surveil you. There are always options. And young people, actually, it's so, it's so funny, just in the last few years, people, teenagers don't use Facebook anymore. Not a one. Cannot find one as far as you go. I'm sure your students probably the same way. That mm -hmm. Facebook is their grandparents' platform. They use Instagram or Snapchat, but, but not Facebook, which actually is a real improvement because Facebook was the worst violator. And um, even though they own Instagram, it's less violative than Facebook was in terms of just how uh, the information is shared and how much of it they ask for and TikTok too, you know, showing a picture of somebody dancing is just like relatively benign compared to give us all of your information and share your whole life with, with everybody without any check. So I, I'm optimistic about how things change and how behaviors change and how much trends can actually improve uh, corporate behavior. Because if if the kids under 18 don't want to share all of these things and put their photos and information permanently on the web, then actually that changes how these things are monetized, how the companies behave, what they seek, what do they imitate, what, what comes next. And so I think I'm always hopeful that individual behaviors and individuals drawing borders and, and guidelines and lines in the sand can actually help. And then whether or not they guide the overall behaviors of all humankind, that's one thing. But personally, you always do have options. Even if you can't change it all, you can and should be able to at least opt out of anything you find unethical. And anytime you feel uncomfortable, you can and should thoughtfully opt out. And so I do feel like we have power over our personal lives. We don't have unlimited power. We don't have as much as we want, but we do have some power and we do have options and we can say no. And starting with the fact that you don't even have to have a smartphone. Life can go on. You don't have to be tracked everywhere you go. There's just so many of these simple things that you actually do have control over if you choose to exercise it. Thank you, Dave. Thanks a lot, Deb. Dave Eggers' novel, The Circle, was released in 2013. Eggers is the co-founder of 826 National, a network of youth writing and tutoring centers around the United States. Numerous other organizations worldwide operate with inspiration from the 826 National model. Realizing the need for greater college access for low-income students, Eggers founded ScholarMatch, a nonprofit organization designed to connect students with resources, schools, and donors to make college possible. Trained as a painter, Eggers' artworks have been exhibited at the Museum of Contemporary Art in Detroit, the Nevada Museum of Art, the Biennial of the Americas, and numerous other galleries and art spaces. Eggers is the winner of the Muhammad Ali Humanitarian Award for Education, the Dayton Literary Peace Prize, the TED Prize, and he has been a finalist for the National Book Award, the Pulitzer Prize, and the National Book Critics Circle Award. In 2018, Eggers co-founded the International Congress of Youth Voices, an annual gathering of 100 extraordinary young writers and activists. Their landmark meeting in San Francisco resulted in a youth-written manifesto published by The Guardian. I'm Deb Donut, and this is Technically Human.